Part 2, Chapter 10 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kate Meehan, Austin, Texas. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1 by Edward Tyus Cook. Chapter 10 The Popular Heroine. Miss Nightingale looks to her reward from this country in having a fresh field for her labors and means of extending the good that she has already begun. A compliment cannot be paid dearer to her heart than giving her work to do. Sidney Herbert The news of Miss Nightingale's illness spread sympathetic anxiety throughout Great Britain. Even more than when her mission of mercy was first announced, she became the popular heroine, and more than ever men and women of all classes sought means of showing their sympathy. Lady Verney, whose depth of feeling is not concealed by the play of humor which sparkles pleasantly upon the surface, described, successively, the penalties and pleasures of being the sister of a heroine. Miss F. P. Nightingale to Miss Ellen Tollet, Embley, Friday, Summer of 1855. I'm quite done with writing. A second blast of linen and knitted socks was nearly the death of me. And hints, my dear, oh my horror of being asked for hints, such as can newspapers be put into the post free, and such like nayseries. How grateful I am for you for never once having inquired whether socks or muffetees are most required, and whether you are safe in sending six towels and an old tablecloth to London, or whether they had better come to us. It sounds very ungrateful, I'm afraid, but when one's wrist aches over the two hundredth repetition of the matter, I do wish the public would apply to the nearest post office, or read that scarce and erudite work the Times, and use their sense and not their pens. However, these words are only when I am cross at having been prevented from writing to the folk I love, such as thee, of the progress of Scutari. Else generally the feeling in every soul, so wide and so deep, touches us more than I can tell, and helps us over the inevitable weight of the anxiety more than I thought possible. Heavy, red-faced, old fox-hunting squires, who never had a sentiment in their lives, come with their eyes full of tears. Narrow-minded farmers with both eyes on the main chance are melted. Young ladies who never got beyond balls and concerts are warmed. Dearest, I do feel of the feeling she has raised. It blesseth him here who gives and those out there who take, and who will do good wider than one hoped. I can't so much as write for a dispatch box for her, thinking an official of her scale must want one for her papers, without its coming back full of pretty little matchboxes as an offering, and wrapped in a large contribution of old sheets. I must give you the cream of his last three or four days' letters. Firstly, Mr. Hookham, the bookseller, sending down a parcel, says he trusts to hear of the return of Miss N., as he does not think, though convalescent, she can get well on the shores of Bosphorus or Black Sea, that a general or admiral can be replaced, but there can be no successor to Miss N. Her skill, her fortitude, her courage cannot be replaced. I speak of a courage in the most exalted sense that it is possible to characterize the bravery and devotion of woman. 
Then comes a letter from a ship owner in the north of Scotland, going to launch a vessel and wanting to call it after her. He sends to have her name quite correct. Next, Lady Dunsany saying that Joan of Arc was not more a creation of the moment and for the moment than F. Jones was the same unearthly influence carrying all before its spirit might. Jones was the same strange and sexless identity, which, belonging as it were neither to man nor woman, seemed to disembody and combine the choicest results of both and then to sweep down conventionalities, prejudices, and pruderies with the clear, cold, crystal scepter of its majestic purity. Joan's mission, too, was the condensation of her country's moral and intellectual power in the person of a young and single woman when the men of that country were so many of them imbecile and effete. I think my parallel runs pretty close. Lord Dunsany adds that he has no time to write, so he says, ditto to Mrs. Burke, and that I know he is fanatico for Joan of Arc Rediviva, God bless her. Then a bit from Lady Byron, saying, even her illness will advance her work, as all things must do for those who do all with his aid, and more that is most beautiful. Then two copies of The History of Women, with portrait of Miss N, to be sent to her from the author and a flaming extract from a county paper in a pamphlet, Stroll to Leah Hurst, 20 copies, ditto, ditto, and a majestic effusion from the family grocer about heroic conduct, brave and noble Miss N, identified with Crimean success and sad disasters, posterity, arm of civilization, rampant barbarism, etc., etc., and so on. To Florence Nightingale, December 8, 1855. It has been curious, as your representative, how our Burlington Street room has seen Manning and Maurice, Mr. Best and the Chancellor, Lady Amelia Jebb and Mrs. Herbert, Lady Byron and Lady Canning, the extremes of all kinds crowding in to help you in every way that they could devise. Then come in tradespeople, all so intent on you, and working folk, your stoutest supporters, and those you will care most for. And we are tenderly treated and effectively welcomed by one and all, of all classes and opinions, for your sake, my dear, and very sweet to me is kindliness for your dear sake. It seems as if it were part of you coming to meet me. 2. But Miss Nightingale's popularity was not limited to such circles as those in which her family moved. Letters from soldiers in the Crimea had made her known in thousands of humble homes, and she became the heroine of the cottage, the workshop, and the alleys. Old soldiers dropped into poetry about her and rhymed broadsheets with rough woodcuts of the lady with the lamp, issued from the printers in Seven Dials and Soho. One of these songs, entitled The Nightingale in the East, and intended to go to the tune of The Cottage and Watermill, was especially popular with its refrain, So forward, my lads, and may your hearts never fail. You are cheered by the presence of a sweet nightingale. Then from the same class of printing offices there issued Price One Penny, the only and unabridged edition of the life of Miss Nightingale, detailing her Christian heroic deeds in the land of tumult and death, which has made her name most deservedly immortal not only in England, but in all civilized parts of the world, 
winning the prayers of the soldier, the widow, and the orphan. The poets and biographers were not only in Seven Dials. The poet's corner of every newspaper, from Punch and the Spectator to the smallest country journal, was devoted to the praise of the heroine. Ingenious triflers were at work, and it was found that her anagram was indeed, as an old definition has it, posy transferred, and Florence Nightingale became flit-on cheering angel. Prize poems at the universities pictured her in the manner of such compositions, walking fearlessly where strong men tremble and where brave hearts fail. When the musicians took up the popular heroine, and both now and after her return from the Crimea, sentimental songs set to music were inscribed to her, angels with sweet approving smiles, the shadow on the pillow, the soldier's widow, the woman's smile, the soldier's cheer, this latter played by the band of the 97th Regiment, die Soldaten Libivol, the star of the east, and so forth. The stationers followed in the wake of the printers and brought out notepaper with a picture of Florence Nightingale as the watermark, or with lithographed views of Lee Hurst, her home. Portraits of her were eagerly sought, and as the family were unwilling to supply them, likenesses had to be invented to adorn sentimental portraits. Lifeboats and immigrant ships were christened the Florence Nightingale. Children, streets, Valses and racehorses were named after her. The forest plate handicap was worn by Miss Nightingale, beating Barbarity and nine others. Tradesmen printed portraits and short lives of her on their paper bags. At fairs, there were grand exhibitions of Miss Florence Nightingale administering to the sick and wounded. China figures, with no recognizable likeness to her, but inscribed Florence Nightingale, were put on sale. The public would not be denied. Yes, indeed, wrote Lady Verney to her sister, the people love you with a sort of passionate tenderness that goes to my heart. Miss Nightingale did not relish all this. They had sent her various supplies for the sick and also a packet of lives, portraits, and the like to Scutari. My effigies and praises, she wrote in reply, were less welcome. I do not affect indifference to real sympathy, but I have felt painfully, the more painfully since I have had time to hear of it, the eclat that has been given to this adventure. The small still beginning, the simple hardship, the silent and gradual struggle upwards, these are the climate in which an enterprise really thrives and grows. Time has not altered our Savior's lesson on that point, which has been learnt successively by all reformers from their own experience. The vanity and frivolity which the eclat thrown upon this affair has called forth has done us unmitigated harm, and has brought mischief on, perhaps, one of the most promising enterprises that ever set sail from England. Our own old party, which began its work in hardship, toil, struggle, and obscurity, has done better than any other. 3. When it became known in England that Miss Nightingale had recovered from her illness and had resolved to remain at her post until the end of the war, a movement at once sprang up for making in some public manner the nation's appreciation of her services and her devotion. There was at first some idea, as Lady Verney wrote, of a personal testimonial in the teapot and bracelet kind. 
Mrs. Herbert, who was consulted in the matter, knew her friend well enough to be certain that Miss Nightingale would decline to accept any such proposal. The only form of testimonial to which she would ever listen was something to enable her the better to carry on her work for others. Miss Nightingale was written to, and replied, in accordance with Mrs. Herbert's expectation, that she must absolutely decline any testimonial of a personal character. Her friends knew well that what she would best like was the establishment in one form or another of an English Kaisersworth. This suggestion was accordingly put before her, and she was asked to submit a plan. Her reply was, again, very characteristic. Immersed in the crowded work of the moment, she was in no mood to make future plans, but she took the earliest opportunity of intimating that, whatever the plan might be, she must be the autocrat of it. Mr. Bence Jones has written to me, she said, September 27th, for a plan. People seem to think I have nothing to do but sit here and form plans. If the public chose to recognize my services and my judgment in this matter, they must leave those services and that judgment unfettered. She was experiencing enough of fetters in the East to last her for a lifetime. An influential committee was formed on which Mr. Sidney Herbert and Mr. S.C. Hall served as honorary secretaries, and it was decided to raise a fund for the establishment of some school for nurses under a council to be nominated by Miss Nightingale. A public meeting was called for November 29, 1855, at Willis's rooms, to give expression to a general feeling that the services of Miss Nightingale and the hospitals of the East demand a grateful recognition of the British people. The room proved far too small. It was crowded to suffocation, and never, said the Times, in reporting the meeting, had a more brilliant, enthusiastic, and unanimous gathering been held in London. Burlington Street, this 29th of November, wrote Mrs. Nightingale to Florence, the most interesting day of thy mother's life. It is very late, my child, but I cannot go to bed without telling you that your meeting has been a glorious one. I believe that you will be more indifferent than any of us to your fame, but be glad that we feel this is a proud day for us, for the like has never happened before, but will, I trust, from your example, gladden the hearts of many future mothers. One thing will rejoice you. We were all as anxious as you were there that the good Bracebridge's devoted love should be publicly recognized, and Sidney Herbert has taken this occasion to do it most gracefully. The Duke of Cambridge was in the chair and made a simple, manly speech. Sidney Herbert's delighted everyone. Lord Stanley, the Duke of Argyle, and Sir J. Packington spoke capitally. Monkton Milness was very touching. Lord Lansdowne as good as in his best days. All seemed inspired by their subject. Parth and I, though we could not take courage to go ourselves, stayed it over. Our informants came flocking in, and we were rewarded. Fancy, if you can, wrote Mr. Nightingale to his sister, our joy at the universal oneness of the meeting, which has honored Flo with its absolute fiat of well done and well to do. I'm not apt to be easily satisfied with things which I see and feel or hear or think, but all people seem to agree that there was there nothing wanting. The speeches deserve, I think, all that a proud mother said of them. Mr. Sidney Herbert's was perhaps the best, if one can judge from reports, and certainly it is the best remembered, for in the course of it he read out the soldier's letter 
which, as mentioned already, page 237, became famous throughout the world. But the truest thing, as Lady Vernier wrote to her sister, was said by Mockden Milnes. He said that too much had been made of the sacrifice of position and luxury in your case. How true that was is known to all who have read the first part of this volume. God knows, said Mr. Milnes, that the luxury of one good action must to mind such as hers be more than equivalent for the loss of all the pomps and vanities of life. And Mr. Milnes, with the touch of a poet and the feeling of a friend, said another very true thing. He drew a contrast between the crowded and brilliant scene before him and the scene which must meet the gaze of that noble woman who was now devoting herself to a service of her suffering fellow creatures on the black shores of Crim Tartary, overlooking the waters of the inhospitable sea. She was grateful for sympathy, but the glitter of praise and reputation was as nothing, or less than nothing, to her. She was wrestling by those bleak shores with disease and death, wrestling too with jealousies and intrigues and other difficulties. She cared for no recognition except in so far as it could help her in her work. A contribution of a thousand pounds to her private fund, sent by the people of New Zealand in November, greatly pleased her. If my name, she wrote to her parents, and my having done what I could for God and mankind has given you pleasure, that is real pleasure to me. My reputation has not been a boon to me in my work, but if you have been pleased, that is enough. I shall love my name now, and shall feel that it is the greatest return that you can find satisfaction in hearing your child named, and in feeling that her work draws sympathies together, some return for what you have done for me. Life is sweet, after all. The form taken by the memorial, inaugurated at the public meeting in Willis's rooms, was the establishment of a Nightingale Fund to enable her to establish and control an institute for the training, sustenance, and protection of nurses, paid and unpaid. A copy of the resolution was sent to Miss Nightingale, who acknowledged it in a letter from Scutari, January 6, 1856. Dear Mr. Herbert, in answer to your letter, which followed me to the Crimea and back to Scutari, proposing to me the undertaking of a training school for nurses, I will first beg to say that it is impossible for me to express what I have felt in regard to the sympathy and the confidence shown to me by the originators and supporters of this scheme. Exposed as I am to be misinterpreted and misunderstood, in a field of action in which the work is new, complicated, and distant from many who sit in judgment upon it, it is indeed an abiding support to have such sympathy and such appreciation brought home to me in the midst of labor and difficulties all but overpowering. I must add, however, that my present work is such as I would never desert for any other, so long as I see room to believe that what I may do here is unfinished. May I then beg you to express to the committee that I accept their proposal, provided I may do so on their understanding of this great uncertainty as to when it will be possible for me to carry it out. Public meetings in support of the fund were held throughout England and the British dominions. Among the speeches made at these meetings, one of the most notable was Lord Stanley's at Manchester. There is no part of England, he said, no city or county, scarcely a considerable village, where some cottage household has not been comforted amidst its mourning 
for the loss of one who had fallen in the war by the assurance that his last moments were watched and his worst suffering soothed by that care at once tender and skillful which no man and few women could have shown. True heroism is not so plentiful that we can afford to let it pass unrecognized, if not for the honor of those who show it, yet very much for our own. The best test of a nation's moral state is the kind of claim which it selects for honor. And with the exception of Howard, the prison reformer, I know no person besides Miss Nightingale who, within the last hundred years, within this island, or perhaps in Europe, has voluntarily encountered dangers so imminent and undertaken offices so repulsive, working for a large and worthy object, in a pure spirit of duty towards God and compassion for man. Lord Stanley showed a true appreciation, too, of the facts in pointing out the strength of character which Miss Nightingale had shown as a pioneer. It is not easy everywhere, especially in England, to set about doing what no one has done before. Many persons will undergo considerable risks, even that of death itself, when they know that they are engaged in a cause which, besides approving itself to their consciences, commands sympathy and approval, when they know that their motives are appreciated and their conduct applauded. But in this case, custom was to be violated, precedent broken through, the surprise, sometimes the censure of the world to be braved. And do not underrate that obstacle. We hardly know the strength of those social ties that bind us until the moment when we attempt to break them. The Nightingale Fund was taken up heartily, but there was some carping criticism, and the jealousies which attended Miss Nightingale's work found expression against the fund in her honor. There were great ladies who, strange as it may now seem, regarded the attempt to raise the status of the nursing profession as a silly fad. Lady Pam, wrote Lord Granville, thinks the Nightingale Fund great humbug. The nurses are very good now. Perhaps they drink a little, but so do the ladies' monthly nurses, and nothing can be better than them. Poor people, it must be so tiresome sitting up all night. The existence of the fund was notified in general orders to the army in the east. I hear, wrote Dr. Robertson at Scutari to Dr. Hall in Crimea, that you have not, any more than myself, subscribed your day's pay to the Nightingale Fund. I certainly said, the moment it appeared in orders, I would not do so, and thereby countenance what I disapproved. Others may do as they please, but though Linton, Crookshanks, and Lawson have all subscribed, I believe the subscriptions in the hospital are not many or large. But this disgruntlement of the doctors was not shared by the troops, who subscribed nearly £9,000 to the fund. The commander of the forces, in sending the secretary of the fund a first remittance of £4,000 from headquarters, Crimea, wrote February 5, 1856, that this amount, the result of voluntary individual offerings, plainly indicates the universal feeling of gratitude which exists among the troops engaged in the Crimea for the care bestowed upon and the relief administered to themselves and their comrades at the period of their greatest sufferings by the skillful arrangements and the unwearying constant personal attention of Miss Nightingale and the other ladies associated with her. The Navy and the Coast Guard Service subscribed also. Nor was society all on the side of Lady Palmerston. A concert given by Madame Goldschmidt, Jenny Lind, brought in nearly 2,000 pounds. 
The ultimate application of the fund did not follow precisely the lines originally proposed, but it was the means of enabling Miss Nightingale to do one of the most useful pieces of her life's work. The sympathy and interest of the royal family in Miss Nightingale's work had been shown by the presence of the Duke of Cambridge in the chair at Wilson's rooms, but the Queen desired to associate herself in some more direct and signal measure with the grateful recognition by her people. A few weeks after the public meeting, the following letter was sent. Windsor Castle, November 1855. Dear Miss Nightingale, you are, I know, well aware of the high sense I entertain of the Christian devotion which you have displayed during this great and bloody war, and I need hardly repeat to you how warm my admiration is for your services, which are fully equal to those of my dear and brave soldiers, whose sufferings you have had the privilege of alleviating in so merciful a manner. I am, however, anxious of marking my feelings in a matter which I trust will be agreeable to you, and therefore send you, with this letter, a brooch, the form and emblems of which commemorate your great and blessed work, and which I hope you will wear as a mark of the high approbation of your sovereign. It will be a very great satisfaction to me when you return at last to these shores, to make the acquaintance of one who has set so bright an example to our sex. With every prayer for the preservation of your valuable health, believe me always yours. Sincerely, Victoria R. The jewel, which was designed by the Prince Consort, resembles a badge rather than a brooch, bearing a St. George's cross in red enamel and the royal cipher surmounted by a crown in diamonds. The inscription, Blessed are the merciful, encircles the badge, which also bears the word Crimea. On the reverse is the inscription, To Miss Florence Nightingale, as a mark of esteem and gratitude for her devotion towards the Queen's brave soldiers. From Victoria R., 1855. I hope, wrote Lady Verney, December 27, 1855, you will wear your star to please the soldiers on Sundays and holidays, because judging from those at home, it will be such a pleasure to them to know that the Queen has done her best to do you honor. At home, Miss Nightingale never wore the decoration. She wore it in the East, on one occasion certainly, and possibly on other occasions. If so, it would have been for the reason suggested by her sister. She loved the soldiers. Honors and reputation, so far as they were valued by her at all, and that was little were valued only as a means to the end of further service. With what zeal and to what good purpose she was now devoting herself to serve the best interests of the common soldier, we shall learn in the next chapter. End of chapter 10, The Popular Heroine. Recording by Kate Meehan, Austin, Texas.